Well, good evening. As we prepare to come to the table of the Lord and as we think about uh, the brokenness that we observe in the world around us and the world that's within us, we seek to hear from God tonight. And so I want to pick up where we have left off in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5. Last week we heard a breathtaking story of Jesus and his followers going to foreign, uh, foreign territory, foreign country in order to encounter a man with demons and he was set free and delivered and they were banished from that island unfortunately, their visas revoked and so they come back home to the other side and we are met with yet another breathtaking story. So I'm going to pick up the story in verse 24, we're going to read Mark chapter 5 verses 24 through 34 and we hear these words, so Jesus went with him, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, the disciples answered, that you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And be freed from your suffering. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's um, have a word of prayer th uh, this evening as we approach the scripture. God, we thank you that you're a good and gracious God. And as we hear your word tonight, we know that we need your help. Uh, we need you to love you. And so as we pay attention to the scripture tonight, I pray that you would give us the ears to hear, the hearts and the faith to believe. And because of that, may we be transformed from glory to glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Well, if you've ever had the opportunity to play a game of pool, you know that it's a very challenging thing to try to pick up. It takes a long, long time to excel in the game of pool or maybe billiards is a better way to say it. But you've probably had the unfortunate opportunity to try to hit the ball, the cue ball, when it's against the rails of the table. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but you had this important shot that you like to try to make and you can't seem to hit the ball right. Some people try to go like the behind the back uh, pool cue shot, but it never, whatever happens, someone who tries to hit the ball that's against the rails, unfortunately, makes that terrible sound because you don't hit the ball squarely and who knows where the ball goes and it's ultimately a wasted shot. I think that's an interesting metaphor for our lives at times. Uh, what we have in our common language is whenever someone's up in hard, to, hard and difficult times, they say that they feel like their back is against the wall. Uh, maybe that's been you at some point in your life. I know that there's been times in my life where I've felt that way. But maybe there's a person that comes to your mind tonight who is a friend of yours, a family member of yours, who feels like their back is against the wall. Uh, they have budget restraints because of uh, some costly things in their life and they come home and there's flooding in their basement, their hot water heater has failed and so they feel like they can't win. Uh, perhaps as someone who's been in the hospital several times, they've been treated for this issue and this issue and they go back for a checkup and the doctor's got more bad news for them. They feel like their back 
is against the wall. Perhaps you've got some friends in your life who are in a relational struggle, maybe a marriage that's being strained. And they've gone to counseling. They've got the, the battle plan of how to argue more constructively with one another. And they do it well for a couple of times. But then, you know, the guy doesn't use the coaster uh, one night. Or he doesn't put the clothes in the hamper, but right by the hamper. And it sets off everything again. His spouse goes to the file box and she recounts all the ways in which he has failed her. Uh, that's simply a, a life situation that we have. I feel like our back is against the wall. And I think sometimes we fail to know what to do. When someone in our life is against the wall, we have words of advice and they may heed it or they may not. And at times we grow weary of these folks. And so I think the question that we often have is, what do I do when my back is against the wall? Uh, What do I do if someone I love has their back against the wall? Well, that's a bit of the scenario that we find in Mark chapter 5. The text that we just read tonight is actually in the middle of a longer story. The second half of Mark chapter 5 is what we call an interchange. It's a couple of stories that are woven together uh, so that we see them together. Right before this text, Jesus gets off the boat and he's encountered by a man named Jairus, who is a synagogue ruler in a village there in Capernaum, near Capernaum, and he has a daughter who's deathly ill, and so he chases Jesus down, and Mark tells us that he falls at the feet of Jesus and he begs him to come to his house. And so Jesus agrees to do so. He's an A-lister celebrity in this village as a synagogue ruler, so why not help one of these guys out? It seems like this is a dire situation. And as Jesus and his followers are going to Jairus' house, some more people from a crowd are following him, and so we get to this place in the middle of our story where as this crowd of people is going to Jairus' house, uh, this woman enters into the story. Now, how we know that these stories belong together is the use of the number 12. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. We find that out at the end of the story. And if you can recall from our text tonight, the woman who's had an issue of blood, it's been going on for 12 years now. And she's in a desperate place. She has spent everything that she has. She's gone to doctors like she's been told to do. But her situation is only worse. I mean, Jesus has got an incredible scenario on his hands. He's got basically two needs and one Jesus. It reminds me of those superhero stories where there's, uh, you know, the villain leads the superhero to a bridge and he puts a loved one on one side of the bridge and then there's like a, a, I don't know, a bus full of strangers on the other side of the bridge and the superhero needs to choose which one can he save because he cannot save them both. That's a question that we're confronted with in this story. But it actually has a bit more of a challenging detail here. As we read, this woman who is seeking Jesus' help, she doesn't want to stop the parade over to Jairus' house. She doesn't even want to be acknowledged. She actually wants to stay hidden. She wants to stay invisible. Which asks us the question, why is she doing this? Now some folks who are pretty critical of this woman says she seems to only be looking out for her own needs and that's why she's trying to, I don't know, micromanage her spirituality. She wants to do this in secret and then go back to her isolation. But that's not necessarily the case at this moment. In Jesus' culture, if you had an illness like this, you were required to live apart from the rest of the community. So you can imagine for 12 long years, she was exempt. She was excluded from family gatherings. You can imagine for 12 long years, because she was unclean because of her situation, she probably wasn't embraced in a hug by anyone in her family or in her community. And so you can imagine after a while, when no one remembers your name, when no one invites you over for dinner, when no one embraces you, 
you begin to have a spiraling self-worth for yourself. In fact, maybe Mark is doing something intentional here by not even giving her name in this story. She's an invisible one. She's one that people looked around or she looked through. She wasn't a person of prominence like Jairus and his family and his daughter. And so Jesus, by attending to her needs, sets a brand new precedent. Um, have you ever met someone like this before? Someone with deep, profound needs? Uh, perhaps this is a person that you saw at church one day and they had the facial expression that all of life wasn't going so well. And when you ask them how they're doing, they didn't do the standard reply that we have in American culture. Oh, things are great. Things are good. But they actually unload this multifaceted issue for you to consider and to pray for. And as a faithful Christian, one who wants to follow Jesus, you attend to their needs, you attend to their story, and you reach out back to them a couple of times, and they tell you more and more things that they're going through, and it gets really heavy. You ever met a person like this before? And you give them pieces of advice to maybe address some of the issues that they're dealing with, and they don't heed your advice, advice at all. Uh, they, they think that maybe just asking advice um, is good enough, but actually not taking it into consideration is something they haven't considered yet. You ever got a text message from this person late at night and you have this temptation, I don't know if I should respond to them. I don't feel like responding to them. And why do I have read receipts turned on on my phone right now so they know that I've read their message, right? I remember um, in my last church, uh, there was a gal uh, who attended our church. Um, she and her family and her husband was struggling with alcoholism and he stopped attending church. And so initially people recognized that he was gone. And so she would, uh, whenever she came alone, people would go across the room, they would talk to her and she would talk about their situation again and again and things never got better. And so what she found and she pulled me aside one day, she says, it's been quite a long time since anyone has reached out to me. Uh, no one has sent a text message. No one has sent a Hallmark card, even the cheesy ones. And she worked for Hallmark, so she knew them. That would have been a, a piece of grace to her. Uh, she says, hardly anyone wants to talk to me now. And the situation hasn't changed. It's almost like there was a force field around her. At some point, maybe her burden was too heavy to carry. Or maybe we've been that person before. We come to church and we hear about the radical grace of Jesus and the radical community of Jesus and we were encouraged by a pastor to share your needs with one another. We're told in the book of James, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so we applied the word that day and we told somebody about our multifaceted issue and they reached out to us a couple of times. But then if we open up a text conversation with a couple of people that we've shared our information with, we'll notice that we've sent text and there's been no reply for some time. It's a stack of us reaching out and no one has responded. And we feel invisible. We feel like our back's against the wall and no one is there to join us. Uh, but the good news about this passage is that Jesus doesn't allow this woman to go unnoticed. She was used to being invisible. She was used to maybe be, she went from being a nuisance to being a nobody. But whenever she touched the cloak of Jesus's clothes and she was healed, instead of, allow, instead of Jesus allowing her to have her symptoms cured, Jesus 
had some more of a plan for her. So we see in Mark chapter five, verses 32 through 34, these words. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So Jesus knows there's a dire need at the edge of town, but he stops everything in front of all this crowd, and he wants to make sure he encounters the person who touched his clothes, where the power went out of him, and the faith healed her, and he wanted to restore her, because more was at stake than just having the bleeding stop. But she needed to be integrated back into the community and away from the wall of isolation. Notice that Jesus says here that his power... And her faith had healed her symptoms. And I think we need, this is an important time. This is a, a key time for us to be reminded about what faith is. And what's great is that Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us what faith is. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Let's just be honest. Even as Christians who love the Bible and read the Bible faithfully, this woman's idea of if I just touch the edge of his clothes, I will be healed is a crazy confession. Can I hear an amen? This stuff doesn't happen. We wouldn't deduce that with all that we know about reality, about illnesses. And so scholars and Bible commentators try to figure out how she could put point A and put these pieces together. How would she know that touching the edge of his clothes would cause the healing within her? And we come up empty with something that's justifiable in our rational mind. But somehow she knew that her answer was hidden in plain sight. And that as she followed through with the inner urgings that God was whispering to her, she followed through as she pressed through the crowd, come off the wall, come out of isolation and encounter the resurrection power of Jesus, that she would indeed go through a change. She needed to find the doorway, but it was hidden in plain sight. This reminds me of Harry Potter, if you have any Harry Potter fans in the room. This is a picture of diagonally. You put those two together and it's the word diagonally. Um, Harry Potter receives an invitation to go to Hogwarts and he's got all these school supplies that Walmart frankly doesn't carry. You're not going to find a magic wand at Walmart. And so he's Hagrid, who's his guide at this time, is trying to tell him how to get all of his resources for the first day of school. And they go to this sketchy looking place called the Leaky Cauldron and they push a brick and it opens up a doorway and there's been an alley in the city of London this whole time in plain sight that everyone else didn't see but it was a doorway into a brand new world. And in this moment, with all that crowd that was pressing around Jesus, there was only one person who knew where the door was and her faith got her there. This is what's important. A person with desperation like this woman who had her back against the wall is a person that we need in the church today because if we're not in touch with real needs and around people who are in a place of desperation, we may forget the wildness of God. This is a wild story. And though we might confess and say, God can do whatever he wants, we don't have the wild imagination like this woman does on this crowded, hall, this, this crowded dusty roadway to Jairus' house. But her desperation and her faith allowed her to see something that nobody else was able to see. But Jesus stopping the crowd 
in acknowledging this woman has a lot of ramifications for us as Bible readers today. The first one is this, is that in a scandalous turn of events, this invisible woman who was dead broke with a medical issue inside of her body and because that she was unclean for a dozen years, she actually becomes the teacher for Israel on this day. Notice that Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He would have known the scriptures. He was the one teaching folks in that community. But there's going to be some news that's going to reach his ears moments after our story. And people from his house are going to meet him and Jesus on the road. And they're going to say, don't bother Jesus any longer. Your daughter has passed away. And Jesus' response to him is, do not doubt, only believe. And if Jairus was gonna ask, how shall I believe in this time? He can have the faith to believe because he just witnessed a woman who has crawled through pairs of legs on a crowded street who just touched the cloak, the edge of his cloak, and her symptoms were cured. So on this day, in the midst of a community who didn't have a high view of women, Jesus allows a woman to be Israel's teacher this day. These are fighting words from Jesus in the middle of this crowded street. The second thing is this, is that healing happens within community. It wasn't enough for her to have her symptoms cured, but she needed to be reintegrated back into the community because she's fallen off the invitation list. She doesn't get the Christmas card any longer. There's not a space for her at the family table any longer, and so Jesus stops everything, and notice how he refers to her. He doesn't say woman, or he doesn't call her by her first name. He says daughter. Your faith has healed you familiar terms. So what Jesus is confessing over this crowd is that this person is not just an outsider. She's not a stranger. She's not someone that you used to know who you unfriended years ago because of the ceremonial cleansing laws. She's now a family member again, and she now has access back into the community. But more than anything else, I think the last thing that this scripture teaches us is that if we are willing to join people when their back is against the wall, we can truly create a beautiful world around us. The world is brimming with potential if we choose to back, go back against the wall with those who are in a desperate situation because just like this woman on this dusty road, the ways that we, in which we join people on their backs against their own wall, that we can begin to create a beautiful world. Let me share just a couple of examples. The first one is this from Charity Water. I heard an amazing story about Charity Water. If you know that they're a place that gathers money and they dig wells for people who don't have clean drinking water. But they noticed that they felt like they could extend their reach a little bit more. And so they hired a marketing firm to try to go in and help clarify their message. And it worked because that next fundraising year, they actually doubled what they brought in the previous year for fundraising, so they got to dig twice as many wells in foreign countries. That's how it works. If you raise twice as much money, you can uh, dig twice as many wells. And as these well projects were completed, they began to get some correspondences from these new communities. And when they got to the people who d dug the new well in Ethiopia, this is what they said. There's a message from our friends in this village in Ethiopia who we just dug a water well for, the mothers thank you from this village because they say now that they have clean drinking water, they can name their babies because their babies are living long enough to be named. So you can imagine being in those marketing meetings 
and you're agonizing over words and images and website design, you're thinking to yourself, this is the most nauseating work. It's gonna have no impact on our mission. We should be out there getting our mission done. But the work that was done there in that room, the focus in that room actually helped bring somebody's back off against the wall. And moms in Ethiopia can actually name their babies because somebody cared. The second slide is this is a pin for those who deal with uh, folks who have dyslexia. I actually saw this pin on the lapel of Roger Lowe, who attends the 930 service here at Eastminster. And I'm new to the, the group here, and so I was asking everybody their stories, and I asked him about his pen, and Roger says that he spends a lot of his time helping raise money for the cause of dyslexia in our community. And he began to rattle off stats for kids who have dyslexia. There's thousands of kids in Cedric County who are in normal classrooms right now and their teachers don't know what to do with them because they're not aware that maybe one out of every five children in their classroom might have dyslexia. Imagine being a kid with dyslexia and all your friends are pulling books off the shelf and they're reading them you know, fast and they're putting them back on the shelf and you're doing spelling tests and everyone else is acing the test and yours gets back and it's got like blood ink all over it because of all the spelling errors that you've made. Imagine the internal message you're giving yourself from an early age, that you can't measure up, that you're stupid, that you'll never be able to learn. Imagine feeling your back against the wall. Roger says that with their efforts and with their uh, bringing people in an awareness of dyslexia, just not far from her, maybe a, a, a golf shop from our, our building, they've purchased ground as a center and a place where they can train kids and they can teach kids with dyslexia. And their wider vision is to train as many teachers as possible to help address the issues of dyslexia in their classroom. Simply caring about kids and organizing fundraising efforts and raising awareness helps bring their backs off against the wall. The next slide is, uh, is a picture of a kid named uh, John Oliver. He's a six-year-old kid from Ohio, and this is his first day of school. And notice that all of his, uh, the kids from school are lined up in the hallways to give him a hand. This is after a three-year battle with leukemia. He spent half of his life so far in hospital rooms, receiving treatment. And this is his first day in school. I don't know about you, but when you've battled and fought off leukemia for three years and your family has spent sleepless nights in hospitals and it's your first day in school, a, a dozen donuts in your first class is not worth it. Like you need to have everyone in the school lining the hallways to welcome you to your first day in the classroom. That's what it's like to go against the wall and to join people who are there and to give them space to take their first step away from their desperation. Uh, perhaps my favorite one of these stories, though, comes from the shadow of the Taj Mahal in India. And I want to show you just a short story about these folks. Go ahead and roll that video. हमारा इसलिए कैफे सिरोज हैंगआउट कैफे है जो यहां पे एसिड अटैक सर्वाइवर आके जॉब कर सकती है और अपने पैरों पे खड़ी हो सकती है पूरा कैफे सर्वाइवर्स रन करती है सर्विस से लेके 
और अकाउंट से लेके मैनेजमेंट मैनेजमेंट में हमारा टीम हेल्प करता है मैं लगता है कि हमारा घर भी कैफे है और कैफे में जॉब भी करते हैं तो मैं घर जैसा लगता है मेरे ऊपर अटैक 26 मई 2012 को हुआ था और मेरे कजन ब्रदर ने मेरे ऊपर अटैक करवाया था किसी से वन लाख ट्वेंटी फाइव थाउजेंड रुपीज़ दे मतलब जब मेरे ऊपर अटैक हुआ था नहीं तो मैं मैंने मैं जब मैंने अपने डेढ़ साल के बाद अपना फोटो देखा था तो मैं अपने ही चेहरे से मतलब एक महीने तक डरी थी चिल्लाती थी चीखती थी कि कोई मुझे मारने आ रहा मतलब जो भी ऐसा अटैक करता है उसका कारण यही होता है या तो वन साइड इन लव होता है या प्रॉपर्टी मैटर होता है या मतलब कोई कोई भी घर वाले उसे देख के डर जलते हैं कि वो कितनी खूबसूरत है तो वो अपनी लाइफ में आगे बढ़ रही है ये होता है कि जितनी भी लड़कियों के ऊपर अटैक हुआ है वो सिक्सटीन सेवनटीन ईयर्स तो क्या होता है पढ़ाई करते करते अटैक हो जाता है जॉब लेने के लिए जाती हैं लेकिन वहाँ पे अगर वो स्कूल में भी जाते हैं तो बोलते हैं टीचर कि तुम्हें देख के बच्चे डर जाएंगे तुम नहीं पढ़ा पाओगी जो भी नई सर्वाइवर आती है तो जब हम एक दूसरे से बात करते हैं तो हम समझाते हैं क्योंकि पहले हम भी उस दर्द से गुजर चुके हैं तो हम जाता कि हम समझाएंगे तो सामने वाला और ज़्यादा बेहतर समझेगा इस चीज़ को और यहाँ पे आएगा तो सोचता है यार जब वो कर सकता है तो मैं क्यों नहीं कर सकती तो सबसे बड़ी बात तो एक दूसरे से हम लोगों को हिम्मत मिलती है Somebody had the courage to pay a mortgage payment, probably a costly one near the Taj Mahal, to open up a place and to make a stipulation only those who have survived an acid attack may be able to work here. And the grace that washes over an individual when people finally stop looking around them or away from them but include them is something that is transformational. Which brings us back to the pool table. If you ever find the, the pool cue, uh, the balls against the wall, uh, you have a tough time hitting it because you can't quite get the space to do so. But maybe not professional tournaments, but in some households, they have a house rule where you could take the pool cue and you could put it against the rail and move the ball away, the width of the pool cue, in order to get a better shot. That's what happens when we meet Jesus. The scripture teaches us that all of us have our back against the wall because of our sin. Because we're enemies of God, we've turned away from God. But Jesus moves us away from the wall of sin so that we can get a fresh new start. But the call of the gospel goes deeper than that. Now that we've been moved away from the wall, it is our call to join those who have their back against the wall, who've been disinherited like this person in Mark chapter 5, and to give them a chance to move away from the wall. That's what we see at the table of the Lord tonight. We have house rules here. For those who have their back against the wall, there is hope for us. There's hope for you and for me. Jesus told us that when he was with his disciples and friends as they were meditating on their own life and Jesus was nearing the time of the cross, Jesus told them that he would lay down his life for them and that they would have new life. And he gave them a meal as a way for them to imagine what life could be because of his sacrifice. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins for a brand new covenant. Take and drink 
Do this in remembrance of me. The scripture teaches us as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Each of us are invited to this table. It's a table where we can think about our own lives, we can think about the world around us and know that it doesn't end with us trapped with our backs against the wall, but we're given fresh new life. I pray that as you and I come to this table, we'll recognize God's grace in our own life and be empowered as we leave this table to help join those against the wall and to lead them into new and fresh and free places. As we prepare to come to this table tonight, we have a refrain that we'd like to say together because we come to this table together, each of us with our varied experiences, with either we're new in the faith or we have been in the faith for quite a long time. If our faith life is going very well, if we're struggling at this moment, we're all welcomed at this table and we all hear the words of grace again. So I want us to say something together, a refrain that we prepared I'll go ahead and put those words on the screen. And I want to say this a couple of times so we can get used to saying it because this is how we're going to be invited to the table each and every week here at the Thursday service. Behold what you are. May you become what you receive. And all together. Christ. We'll say that one more time. Behold what you are. May you become what you receive. Amen. Whenever you feel fit, you may come to the table tonight and receive the blessed gift of Christ and meditate on his goodness towards us.